Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. One of the lessons we learned from this case is that if you believe in the case, you know, persistence pays. And you know, we strongly believed in this case. We believe that Kennedy, who I said it to the jury in my opening, Kennedy is a good institution. They do good work, but they this case was fatally flawed. And uh, if you believe in the case, you just you keep at it. And that's what we did. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey, your host. Yvonne, um, something's different today since the last time we've recorded one of these. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like the whole world has changed. The whole world has changed. I think the last time we recorded... I like made a joke about going home when I went to see my parents and they took me to the grocery store and I like joked about doomsday prepping, but that was not funny in retrospect. That was in bad taste. I'm sorry about that joke. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you didn't think you needed to do a stock up on toilet paper. I didn't actually. And I didn't like, I refused to in part because I didn't want to be seen as like somebody who was overreacting and panicking at the store. And uh, that was a mistake. Now, now, now is not the time to play it cool. No, no. <laughs> I've learned a lot of lessons so far. Well, uh, yeah. So uh, welcome everybody to uh, to the new uh, home version. I mean, we've, of course, done these from home before, but uh, now we're sort of required to do these uh, shows from home now. And um, and I want to go ahead and introduce our, uh, our uh, great uh, guest today. Uh, he's a lawyer up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Brian Brown. Brian is a partner at Brown and Barron LLC in Baltimore. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, hanging in there and adjusting to our new lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I was literally uh, about 30 minutes before this, I was on the phone with the federal court judge about how we were going to keep our case moving forward. And he basically said, you know, he's not going to make anybody do anything for the next 30 days. So, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of where we are. <laughs> yep. We're all in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brian, let me introduce you and let me tell our listeners about you. And then we'll get into talking about this case that, uh, that uh, I mean, one is just um, really disappointing, really uh, sort of shocking, um, but, um, but just very important and, uh, and, and great work. And what I, what I can only say was a very uh, difficult and complex case. Uh, but Brian. And a, and a lot of tie-ins. Uh, yeah. I feel like a lot of tie-ins into what we're going through now, <laughs> yes. but. We could talk yeah, about yes. that later. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, uh, Brian, as I said already, Brian is a partner at Brown and Barron LLC in Baltimore, Maryland. You can look up Brian at brownbarron.com. That's uh, Brown as in Brown and then uh, Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N.com. So uh, uh, Brian is the founding partner of uh, Brown and Barron LLC. And I, I actually did a little looking up because I noticed that your complaint in this case was was filed by... Uh, it sounds like maybe the lawyer you started out with and your mentor, Saul Kerpelman, is that his name? That's correct. Uh, I, was, I worked for Saul for many years and we filed this complaint together. And then uh, at the end of 2016, Saul retired and Leah, my partner, who was an associate at Saul's office also, we purchased Saul's practice together. And now she and I are partners. Wow, well, that's fantastic. Well, and, and as uh, I want to let everybody know, so uh, Brian, you've tried over a hundred tort cases, had numerous multi-million dollar verdicts, uh, also been in the court of court of appeals uh, more than fifty times, uh, and pre- you present on uh, multiple different topics on trial advocacy uh, through both AAJ and the Maryland Association of Justice. Uh, you're a super lawyer a fellow in the Litigation Council of America, and you uh, were the president of the Maryland Disability Law Center and uh, volunteer with both the, uh, with, uh, with the Upton School Foundation. Um, and so, Brian, we, uh, we are just glad to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, well, this case, as I said, was um, it is a really interesting case. It's not something that I I've never done a lead uh, dust case before. It sounds like that was a, a or that is a fairly big part of your practice, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, uh, complexities here that I thought the way you did it in opening uh, just really walked through um, 
you know, some, some issues that would be difficult for people to understand, but really sort of laid it out very well. Um, but let me give everybody the, uh, the overview. The name of the case uh, was Ashley Partlow versus Kennedy Krieger Institute. Uh, it was a $1,841,000 verdict uh, in October of 2019. Uh, and this really um, involved a, um, a, I mean, it, from what I can tell, Kennedy Krieger Institute sounds like a, uh, at least, a very reputable um, institute up in in Maryland that that deals with disabled children uh, and helps them medically. Uh, But they had, they were behind a study, a lead paint uh, study or lead-based paint study abatement study that they were doing back in 1994. Uh, And um, as part of that study, they were trying to find out cost-effective ways to abate lead and um, they basically got uh, funding in order to come up with different levels uh, that they could abate lead or different amounts of money that they could put into repairs of uh, apartments. And so what they, what they did is they would go out and find these apartment owners, these landlords, uh, who had apartments that had lead in them. They would then basically categorize them through four different levels. The level one, I think, got $1,650 worth of repairs. Level two got $3,500 worth of repairs. Level three got $6,000 to $7,000 worth of repairs. And then level four got a comprehensive abatement where they, they got rid of all the lead. And then and, and, they, would, and they would basically get a, a free loan to the landlords. Um, but the landlords were required to uh, rent their uh, apartment to families with small children and specifically infants. Uh, and then basically they studied, <clears throat> excuse me, they studied uh, how these families did uh, with their, the levels of lead that the children had. Uh, and, and really the families had no idea that they were being part of this study had no idea that, that there were apartments that they could get that were being abated more than the apartments they were in. And so your client, Ashley Partlow, uh, lived in this, um, this apartment that um, it sounded like was condemned or at least boarded up before they moved in. She was five years old at the time um, and, you know, comes in and, and basically her um, levels of lead in her blood uh, went up and then um, and so the basis of the case was uh, against Kennedy Krieger for allowing them to be in this um, uh, place where they they knew that they were going to be exposed to lead um, it didn't give them any type of warning really didn't give them any choice um, and basically we're just using children as guinea pigs uh, and so this case was brought um, this was back in the 90s. This case was brought in, or at least tried in 2019 when uh, Ashley was over 30 years old um, for uh, uh, developmental delays that she had um, and had some learning disabilities. And, um, and there was a, a lot of experts involved. And I know I'm going on with this, but I mean, it's, it's a very complex case. And Brian, I'm sure I'm screwing it up all over the place. But essentially, that was the case against Kennedy Krieger uh, Institute. And you were... Uh, uh, successful in in holding them accountable uh, for this uh, sort of inadequate study that they did where they were, uh, I mean, pretty much intentionally exposing children to levels of lead. Yeah. So that's right. And just, you got it almost perfect, but they, <laughs> they, they were, they were, uh, they were row homes, not apartments. Okay. Okay. That, and that's an important distinction because Baltimore like older, other older industrial belt cities uh, are full of old row homes that are full of lead base paint. Right. And, okay. you know, that's uh, what happened in this case was different because most cases that are lead paint cases, the child brings the case against the landlord who owned the property, who failed to keep the property up, comply with the housing code, allowed the child to get poisoned. That's not what happened in this case. This was against a, as you said, Steve, a well-respected medical institution, Kennedy Krieger. It's part of the Johns Hopkins institutions. And they do really good work most of the time helping children 
with all kinds of disabilities. But in this case, what they did was, you use the word guinea pigs, and that's the word that I was prevented from saying at trial by the judge. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to. Right. Uh, if there was a motion in limine about that. Uh, but what they did was they took these children and they compared the changes in their blood lead levels from the time they moved in and subsequently to the different levels of remediation that you outlined that were done in the houses. And they basically said, okay, at level one, the children's level go up this much, level two, they go up this much, or level three, they go up this much. And they were trying to find the, a, a cheap way for landlords to avoid doing level four repairs, which were a total comprehensive abatement of the property. And the problems with the study were so numerous, but the primary one was they didn't tell the kids' parents what this study was all about. They said they did. They said there was an informed consent form, but it was woefully inadequate. Most of the children involved in the studies were marginalized. Their parents <clears throat> were not always well-educated, they weren't given legal advice before they signed these forms, and they moved the kids into these properties with the promise that they were moving in to a lead-free or lead-safe house, when in fact, that wasn't the case. And lots of these kids got poisoned, worse than they were when they, had moved, than they were when they moved into the house. And in this case, it was particularly challenging because Ashley was too old to qualify for participation in the study. Her sister was in the study. Ashley was there because she was living with her family. And Kennedy Krieger said, we can't be liable to Ashley. We did not owe a duty to her <laughs> because she was not in the study. And that's what the whole summary judgment and the appellate process took us through and then back to the trial. It was just as an initial, my jaw was on the floor reading about this. It made me think of that. Um, it reminded me of that. I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary. I think it's called three identical strangers, but about the, the triplets that were split up and, mm -hmm. and one was put in like a low income home. One was put in a middle, more middle income home. And one, one was put in a higher income home. But the whole thing was they were split up as babies and never even told that they were triplets. So they didn't even know that they had siblings. And it, it's, this reminded me of that both in terms of, you know, putting these kids, really young kids. I mean, what Ashley didn't qualify for the study because she was too old, but she was like five, Brian. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And at that age, it's still within the for lack of a better word, the sweet spot of when children are most susceptible to being injured as a result of exposure to lead. And why is that? Because between pretty much, and everybody's different, of course, birth and age six or seven, that's when our brains are developing the fastest. That's when all the connections are being made in our brains. And lead is a poison which prevents those connections from being made properly as they should have been. And that causes learning differences, loss in IQ points, behavior problems, and a whole litany of issues that I could take this whole hour uh, going through. Well, so it, if Ashley wasn't in the study, my understanding was that you were still, was, were her blood levels still being tested or, or was, was that happening another way? Because I know you were able to sort of show what was happening to her as a result of this exposure. So that's a great question. And in cities like Baltimore's, and it's mandated by the standard of care all over the country in certain zip code when there, where there's lots of lead in housing like Baltimore. It's the standard of care in pediatrics that a child's blood lead level is taken at a well child visit when you take your kid to the pediatrician. Okay. Now, in addition to that, because Ashley's sister was being transported to Kennedy to have her blood drawn as part of the study, Ashley went along for the ride with her mom 
And on at least one occasion, her blood was drawn at the same Kennedy Clinic that her sister's was being drawn for the study, but not as part of the study. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I, I saw that in your opening, you addressed the, the fact that they were going to be arguing that they didn't owe a duty to her because she wasn't part of the study. But to me, I, I was kind of thinking, well, what does that matter? I mean, they know she's there. They know, you know, that they're- Thank you, Judge. <laughs> Good. I, did, I didn't know if there were, I mean, what, did the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, is that basically what they went on? Is that they knew she was there and that they knew there was lead there? And so, uh, yeah. yeah. So this is a little bit of a long answer. So this okay. case started with another case called Grimes versus Kennedy Krieger that a lawyer at my old office, she's not there anymore, uh, Suzanne Shapiro argued at the Court of Appeals. And by the way, for everybody listening, in Maryland, the Court of Appeals is our Supreme Court. They don't call it the Supreme Court, but that's our highest level appellate court. Oh, wow. And in that case, in the Grimes case, the, well, the, the, the issue was the same. Did, did Kennedy owe a duty to a study participant? And the trial court and the Court of Special Appeals, that's our intermediate court, uh, appellate court, said no, there is no duty. But the Court of Appeals in that case said yes, Kennedy owed a duty to uh, study participants like Ashley's sister. And that case came back. This case was, and by the way, in that case, the Court of Appeals excoriated Kennedy and, and compared it to Tuskegee and Nuremberg and all kinds of horrendous studies in history and basically said, you're using the kids, they use the words canaries in the coal mine is what the Court of Appeals used right. in that case. In our case, it was different because Ashley was not a study participant. And so they made the argument again that they did not owe a duty to Ashley because she was not in the study. And so we lost on summary judgment. The court took it away and said, you don't owe a duty. Uh, Kennedy does not owe a duty. We took it up. The Court of Special Appeals, in a two-to-one opinion, uh, ruled our way and said, Yes, they do. And Kennedy applied for cert and the Court of Appeals granted it. And thankfully, in a four to three opinion, affirmed the Court of Special Appeals and said there is a duty for the exact reasons you said, Steve. They knew she was there. They knew that lead was dangerous. 
They knew that uh, that uh, <clears throat> they knew that lead causes brain injury, and we still had to prove that she was injured, right. and we still had to prove there was a breach of a duty. There were they were negligent, but at least we got there. A duty existed. And when the case came back, the same judge who granted summary judgment against us had the case for trial, but he gave uh, he gave us a very fair trial. The lawyers were sitting around waiting for the jury. And the lawyers on both sides, as we were hanging out waiting for the jury to come back, both said that it was a clean trial and uh, the judge was it was a it was a good trial. But uh, that was the issue in the case. Did they owe a duty? And in Maryland, there's a there's a uh, principle that you can't have create a duty where they would create a indeterminate number, a class of plaintiffs that anybody could walk in the door and sue. And so Kennedy's argument was, well, what about if a nephew or a cousin comes to visit. Does Kennedy owe them a duty? You know, how far do we take this duty? And so we were very limiting at the Court of Appeals and said, look, this is a finite class of plaintiffs. It per only pertains to siblings or relatives of study participants who Kennedy knew or should have known were regularly there. And that's what they said we had to prove. And of course, we could prove that in this case because Ashley was the participant's sister. Right. So, um, I mean, yeah, so that's really interesting to me. Um, I, I got to imagine that, that, that I don't know if you talked to the jury afterwards, but that doesn't sound like a, it sounds like a, a, a lawyer argument that you get to make to the Court of Appeals, but doing it in front of the jury uh, is something that's probably just going to anger jurors. But I don't know if you so or not. we did talk to the jury afterwards and basically they agreed with your sentiment. They sort of rolled their eyes at that argument. That, so, uh, it, so the defense oh, did make that argument that there well, was no duty so, there? I'm sorry, not so much. They, they made it sort of in a backdoor way because don't forget the court of appeals, thank goodness, said there is a duty. So therefore they couldn't come out in a straightforward way mm -hmm. and say, we didn't owe them a duty because mm -hmm. it's the law. There is a duty. Uh, that's the law we created up at the court of appeals, but they still try to argue that, look, she wasn't in the study. She was older. We didn't know, you know, how frequently she was going to be there. You know, one of the reasons the children had to be younger is because a study participant had to spend at least 80% of their home in time in the home. That was one of the requisites of this study. And so you, they wanted kids who weren't in school yet. Ashley at five was at Head Start or preschool. So she wasn't in the house at much, which is why children of her age weren't in the study. So they were trying to argue, look, you know, she aged out. We didn't, uh, we, we don't, we didn't have the responsibility towards her. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thought you were going to go. About, um, I, I'm speechless. I, I was just—I I did want to ask you because uh, I mean, a couple of a, a couple of questions, I guess, and then and we can just figure out which way we're. I mean, one, you um, uh, had a number of people initially in the lawsuit, and the defense it made that a big part of their opening that you know they sued all these other people. Uh, and all these other people caused lead. So how is it that Kennedy Krieger is responsible? And then uh, it also the other part of that, I guess, is that sounds like you had uh, the landlord come testify for you and that the landlord told or testified that Kennedy Krieger said they were going to completely abate the lead, that it was going to be safe for children to be there. Right. So that that's two parts to that question. Right. So, yes, when the suit was first brought, we sued Kennedy, but we also sued the landlord who owned the house. And we also sued the landlords of other houses where Ashley may have been exposed to lead. And in Maryland, like lots of other states, we don't have to show that the house at issue in the case was the only uh, source of exposure. All we have to show is that it was a substantial contributing factor to her exposure. So of course, Mike Brown, who gave opening and closing as a great lawyer for the defendants, held up our show the complaint caption in his PowerPoint with all the other plaintiffs. And he said, why are they pointing it out at us? Now the answer to that question, which of course didn't come out is, right. the other 
landlords, the other uh, who usually mom and pop kind of place got people, they didn't have uh, coverage for lead paint claims and they didn't have personal phones. Kennedy, who placed Ashley into this house, and by the way, I use the word lured at the trial. They lured Ashley's mom into this house right. by giving the landlords free loans, making the landlords rep- uh, rent to these families, telling mom that the place was lead free or lead safe. They lured her in. So that's why we went after Kennedy. Uh, and we, there are other places where she was exposed. We didn't dispute that, but all we had to prove was that it was a factor, a substantial contributing factor to her exposure. I, I thought it was really effective in the opening how you pointed out the fact, um, both the, both the, the that um, Ashley's mom both wasn't wasn't adequately informed of the risk, wasn't really informed about the risk at all, but also that this the you know purported benefits of the study were pretty ridiculous. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how the study worked? Because at first I was like, well, did they get, were these people who like had really bad credit or wouldn't have been able to get an apartment otherwise, or were they given like really cheap rent? Um, the rent, the rent was the same as they would have paid no matter what. Now this was for sure low income housing. Uh, it, the, 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 Areas of Baltimore where these houses are located are have a lot of ill-constructed, or I should say ill-maintained housing. Uh, but her credit, her the amount she was paying for rent had nothing to do with it. What had to do with it was that in order for the landlord to get this loan, he had to promise Kennedy that he would rent the property to a family that had at least had at least one family member, one child who qualified for the study. That's and then the landlord got these free repairs. It would be there forever, and it will be his forever, even after the study participant leaves. And. And the informed consent that you were asking about, Yvonne, was ridiculous. It didn't say lead causes brain damage. Lead can give your child learning disabilities. Lead can lead to behavior problems. People who have been exposed to lead are more likely to be uh, uh, involved in the juvenile or criminal justice system. None of that, none of the dangers of risk of the risk of exposure to lead were in that informed consent. You know what it said? It said, as you may know, lead poisoning is a problem in Baltimore City, period. Hmm. So, yeah. and the benefits? Right, right. It was like 15 uh, bucks or something? 15 bucks every time you went to, the, to be tested or they came to you to take a survey or a coloring book for the children. That was really awesome. Derek the Dinosaur, my favorite part of the trial. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, the benefits were non-existence. The defendant's expert said the benefit of the study was being in the study. That because you got tested for lead, which they were going to be anyway. Right. And you got a so-called better house than you would have had had you lived in a non-study house. Of course, there was no evidence whatsoever that the house that they were renting from the landlord was better both inside and outside of Baltimore City. And, and go back to the, the, the landlord. Did, did he testify that he had been told that they were going to uh, basically make it safe uh, or that they were going to completely abate the lead? So his testimony changed. I did call the landlord by subpoena in my part of the case, in the plaintiff's case. Uh, at one point, he had testified that they told him that property would be lead free. At another point, he testified that the property would be quote, lead safe, close quote. And those are two different things. It's self-explanatory, I think. Lead free is what it means, lead free. Lead safe means that windows have been replaced because that's a friction area, that areas of chipping and peeling paint have been made smooth, 
the baseboards and the door frames have been removed because they are also frequent areas where uh, chipping, peeling, and uh, friction happens. But he did come in during our case and testify in, in the plaintiff's case, yes. Okay. And he, ch he changed his testimony when you, were, when you had him on direct? No, no, no. It was okay. what he assigned. He testified a deposition in another case many years ago about lead free. And then in this case, he signed an affidavit that said lead free, lead safe. Okay. But either way, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's good for, for the plaintiff's side of the case because that was the, the enticement that drew my client's mother into the property. And she testified that the landlord said the property was lead, lead free. Okay. Got it. Got it. So uh, it, the other interesting, I mean, t the, the causation argument in this seemed to be difficult to me. And so I'd like to hear how you went, went about proving it. But I mean, if you were to listen to the defense lawyer, I mean, he made it sound like back in the 80s and 90s in Baltimore, uh, you were basically just uh, swimming in lead, lead dust, and that uh, no matter where you went, there was lead everywhere. And so uh, there's nothing you could do. You were just going to get exposed to lead no matter what you did. Well, that was his argument. Uh, the primary researcher, Mark Farfell, uh, who is now in New York City doing work there, uh, he testified that Baltimore was a sea of lead and that lead was a horrendous problem and something had to be done. And what we did, according to them, was something is better than nothing. And Mike Brown, again, who did an amazing job, uh, uh, stood up and parroted that argument in his opening and during the trial and in his closing. But it's a true statement that lead was a horrendous problem at that time period in Baltimore and other cities. The question is, what do you do about it? Because it's false to say that no matter where you are, no matter where you lived, you were going to be exposed to lead if you lived in Baltimore. And the, the methodology that they used in this study by using children as test tubes, as guinea pigs, was abhorrent and wrong. And children weren't being exposed everywhere they lived if they lived in housing that was maintained pursuant to the housing code, free of chipping, peeling, and flaking paint, so that children don't get exposed. And the jury did not accept that argument. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers, we're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right, when you close the case, as, uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing, that's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. 
Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out casepacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's casepacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I have a general trial question for you. So I looked at the opening PowerPoint that that you all sent us and it was awesome. (laughs) Um, Did you guys make that yourselves? I wish. No. Uh, well, we have a, can I give a plug to our guy? Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's a guy named uh, Mike Miller, and he has a guy who works with him named John Dom. It's called MGM Trial Services. And basically what we do is we give him or them our ideas. This is what we're trying to convey. This is what we want to say. This is what we have to prove. Go for it. And then we sit down and go back and forth many times over many iterations and do this. It's easier to do the opening because we have time ahead, right. but we're compiling the closing while we're in the midst of this four and a half week trial and uh, trying to put the closing together as we're moving along. And that's a little bit more difficult, but they do an amazing job. And he put the, uh, they put the opening and the closing together for us in, uh, based on our conversations and our ideas. Yeah, it, it, it was, it did look good, just very polished and, and um, really brought the points home uh, yeah. that you were, that you were making. Yeah. And I thought it was cool that you, um, one of the things that you said early, fairly early in your opening was you mentioned how you talk to juries after cases or when you do talk to them, that they always tell you that they learned something new or, you know, after sort of saying how they didn't want to be there initially. And I thought it was cool how you had mentioned that in your opening. And then you started to teach them about how, um, how lead works, how, you know, what it does in the body. And, and um, I just thought that was really great. Cause you're, just, you're basically like, you've already put them on alert. Like you're going to learn something like you're going to, you're going to appreciate that you're going to learn something. And then you started to teach them and it worked on me just like (laughs) reading your own. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) When I had, I have to add to that because I I really liked the, um, where you talked about the penny being, uh, two grams. And so when you're talking about uh, one microgram of lead, you essentially would cut that penny into 2 million pieces. And one of those pieces would be one microgram. Um, that's just very visual and just shows you how much, how little lead it takes to really, um, you know, cause a problem. Right. Cause lead, that's how you measure lead and, and micrograms per deciliter is how you measure lead in your blood. And there's n- no safe level of lead. There is no such thing as a safe level of lead in your body. And so again, we were trying to come up and I've, that's not the first time I've used that analogy in a lead pain case. And it, we do a nursing home at MedMal, but in our leg cases, I've used that analogy before and I keep using it because Steve, as you pointed out, juries have commented afterwards saying that that helped us understand what lead is. Yeah. I did want to, you know, the one big, one thing that I, that struck me about this case is while you, you and the defense were certainly coming at this from different sides there, there, you actually were agreeing on a lot of the issues except for one huge point that um that, that uh, seemed to be a big factual dispute which was you you said to the jury that when she started the program she was at 18 micrograms per deciliter and within a few months she was at 21 uh, micrograms per deciliter the defense said that we, at the start of the program she was at 21 micrograms per deciliter and went down to 13 micrograms per deciliter. And I thought, well, that's a pretty big, I mean, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. How, what was the issue there? And how did you prove that? That I can tell you guys really, really looked at this stuff. That was a big point of contention. And again, forgive me, but I had to, for people that don't know about lead and how it's, how, how it's measured and how it's recorded, especially back then, it needs a little explanation. So lead is drawn 
in your blood and there's a lab slip like any other lab test that we all get and the results spit out and it's on a computer sheet and you get it. In Maryland or in Baltimore, every time there's an elevated blood lead level by, by ordinance, it gets reported to the Baltimore City Health Department. And back then it was filled in by hand. Our, and there was one of these hand-filled sheets that had a blood lead level of 18 before Ashley ever moved into the property. And if she had 18 before she moved in and then 18 after, and then it goes down to 13, that's a problem for the plaintiff's case to say, well, she continued to be exposed in the second property, in the subject property. Our contention was that that handwritten sheet was wrong. That it, it said March, I forgot the year already, of 91, I believe. It said March of 91 on the handwritten. But in reality, it was in August of 91. And they had held up this sheet and said, see, March of 91, she had an 18 before she ever moved into the property. I said, no, ladies and gentlemen, that three should have been an eight. It was a transcription error, a Scrivener's error. And we had lots of arguments to show why it was a Scrivener's error, such as there was no lab slip from March of 1991. There was only a lab slip from August of 91 that showed that 18. There was a, there's communications that go back and forth between different agencies when there's a lead level of 18 that didn't exist, that did exist for the other levels of, that were elevated that had to be reported. And there were other things. And in the closing, and uh, I showed the jury all the things that were missing for this, I called it the fake, the fake 18. Uh, that were missing for the fake 18 and why they should disregard it. Uh, and the jury told us afterwards that they accepted our side of the argument that that three should have been an eight and that it was indeed a fake 21. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so speaking of, you know, kind of how the, the records worked back then and, you know, you told the jury in your opening, you know, you're, you're not here to, don't factor into your decision about when all this happened versus when you're deciding these issues now. But I'm curious as to, um, you know, at this, at the point of the case being tried, Ashley was 30, you know, all this happened when she was five was the, what, what allowed you to bring, be able to bring the case this much later, or was it just what was happening as you described in the appellate history of the related cases or so it's a combination of all that. So in Maryland, and I'm sure a lot of other states, the statute of limitations for a child's claim is told during their minority. Mm -hmm. And so the lawsuit didn't have to be brought until the day before Ashley's 21st birthday. And oh. okay, even if she's poisoned at five, the three-year statute of limitations doesn't start running until you reach the age of majority, 18. And the three years starts running from there. Okay. So the case was brought right close to Ashley's 21st birthday. But we didn't try the case till she was 30. And that brings in all the appellate process because we were the summary judgment that we lost wasn't granted until five days before the trial date is when we got the order granting summary judgment. And wow. our 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 experts were flying in. We had one expert from Australia, one expert from Israel, and thankfully they hadn't gotten on the plane yet, but we were geared up and ready to go. Motions in limine had been filed and responded to, not ruled upon yet. And then we get the order granting summary judgment, and we have to take the appeal to the intermediate court, the Court of Special oh, okay. Appeals and the Court of Appeals. So Oh, that's one awful. of the less one <laughs> Yeah, but one of the lessons we learned from this case is that if you believe in the case, you know, persistence pays. And we, we strongly believed in this case. We believe that Kennedy, who I said it to the jury in my opening, Kennedy is a good institution. They do good work, but they, this case was fatally flawed. And uh, if you believe in the case, you just you keep at it. And that's what we did. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I would have absolutely lost it on granting summary judgment five days before trial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're right in the middle of just getting everything ready. And then, oh, yes. God. All, that ex- all those expenses, you're all wound up. Oh, yes. That's a yes. It was an expensive case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, well worth it. And, and, it, and it worked out well. Um, go ahead, Steve. Uh, I was just going to say uh, a couple of things I want to talk to you about, but, uh, one is talk about how you presented, uh, damages in this case, because I thought you did a, you know, a good job of pointing out that to look at Ashley or to look at anybody who's uh, suffered from lead poisoning, you wouldn't know. Uh, They look like a normal person. They act like a normal person. So you've really got to get uh, past that and show, you know, how this has really affected their life and, and show, you know, the, the different struggles she's had and the delays that she's had. But, but talk about how you went about presenting damages in this case. So damages was a challenge in this case because most of the time when these cases are tried, the child, in quotes, uh, is 22, 23 years old, and they're you know, shortly out of high school, they don't have a long work history. And so we can bring in our experts who can say credibly, based upon the damages that this child has suffered as a result of their exposure to lead, their loss of earning capacity, their economic damages over time are going to be, for example, the difference between what a person with an associate's degree could earn over their lifetime Versus now, a, a person of less than a high school abilities is going to be able to learn over their lifetime. And the difference is their loss of earnings, their economic damages. Because without these, in, without these injuries, this person would have been able to obtain, let's say, an associate's degree and earn what an, a person with an associate's degree would have been able to earn. In our case, we had a work history for Ashley. They tried to say she is not injured. She did not suffer damages because she has been working to her great credit, in my view, since her, she's 18. But our response was, yes, that's true. But all of her jobs have been in either the fast food industry or driving a bus from one place to another for disabled people, ironically, from to and from their adult daycare. She tried to get her uh, LPN, her license to her uh, LPN. She got it, but she never was able to hold a job in that field. So we turned it around and said, they're trying to say she's not injured and didn't suffer damages because she's working. I, I want to give her credit, ladies and gentlemen. She's not wallowing in her own sorrows. She's pulling herself by her bootstraps and doing what she can. And the jury did accept that argument to a degree, although they did not admittedly award the damages economically that we were seeking. What, what, were you able to ask for a number? And if so, what, what did you ask for? Yes. Yeah, so we had, there's two kinds of damages, economic and non-economic, obviously. And for economic damages, we asked for a little over $800,000, or something like that. And the jury, and I'll tell you a story about this after in a second, the jury gave 185, I don't have the verdict sheet in front of me, I sent it to you, but, uh, the, but $185,000 and then the non-economic damages, the jury over, or awarded over a million dollars. Uh, interestingly, the judge gave an instruction that said it essentially, I'm paraphrasing, it's not your job to parse out damages, lady, uh, members of the jury. In other words, you award damages for the injury that she has. And it's not your job to say, well, she got part of it at another house or from outside or wherever your job is to award damages. And unfortunately, I talked to the jury afterwards and they followed that instruction for the non-economic damages part of the award, but they didn't follow that instruction. They pretty much told me, this is how we calculated your economic damages. We took, right. we took it in, you know, she was exposed to other houses, but then they gave virtually everything I asked for, for economic, non-economic damages. But 
that's those are the that's a life of trying yeah. cases. No, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's it, and you wish you could just say, uh, "No, you misunderstood that." Can you go back and? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services uh, give them a try but yeah because that, that was one issue that the defense kept bringing up was that i think she had been in either five or six other houses that uh, that they were claiming that she had been exposed to lead uh at and, and i think you all admitted basically she i mean she obviously had been exposed to lead before um but uh was is that was that how many houses she was at before where she was yeah. exposed that, that I, I don't remember now, but yes, that's four or five houses. Okay. One of which we proved had, had not did not have lead. Was a newer garden apartment kind of complex, and she could not have been exposed to lead there. And that's the to turn that back to what we were talking about earlier. That's she had the chance to go back to that place where it was her aunt, Ashley. Uh, it was uh, Ashley's mom's sister. She could have gone there where it didn't have lead, but because of the representations that were made to her, mm. in my view, by Kennedy through the landlord, mm-hmm. she ended up at this house. Wow. Um, and, and then the other, uh, another point I saw them making, uh, I'm sure your experts talk about this, but she did she only live at the Federal Street address? That's the, the one that was at, at issue uh, for eight months. Is that right? That's about right. And again, the duration, while important, is not dispositive because, as we proved, her lead level was 18 before she moved in and it was 21 while she was there. And there is no safe level of exposure to lead. Her blood lead levels increased while she was living at Federal Street and therefore she sustained an injury there. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to talk about is I, it seemed like there were several experts in, in there and you talked about all of them in the, in the opening. One that I thought was interesting that I've never used before uh, is, was your expert from Australia, I think, was the bioethics expert. Yes. So her name is Meryl Spriggs. She's awesome. Uh, she's never testified in any proceeding before in her life, but... Back when uh, Ms. Shapiro had the Grimes case many, many, many years ago, I think it was 2002, she found out about it and uh, Dr. Spriggs wrote papers on the ethics of the study. Oh. And we became aware of those, those, those papers and that's how we found out about her and decided to use her as an expert in this case. And part of the issues, because remember, this is a negligence case, So did Kennedy, the researcher, act as a reasonably competent researcher, would act under the same or similar circumstances, negligence. And so one of the issues was, was the study ethical? 
did right. because if lack of ethics or unethical behavior is not per se evidence of negligence, but it is evidence of negligence. And so that's something we wanted to prove. And because of her expertise, she was also able to talk about the deficiencies in the informed consent form, which we did a great job of. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and I saw you headed off the uh, issue that the, the defense was going to make about you had to, you know, go find her in Australia, and that's the only one you could find. And, and then I think one of your other experts, you said, had retired to Israel. Um, and so they were trying to make that a point that you uh, had to go all over the world to find these experts. So that's right. The, the, the doctor from Israel, he was our medical doctor. He's the one who came and taught the jury about lead, like, you know, sort of uh, built on what I said, I've talked about an opening and he talked about what lead does, how it works and that Ashley was exposed and injured, but he was a pediatrician in Baltimore for 30 some years before he lived out his lifelong dream and moved to Israel. He wrote the curriculum for new pediatricians, resident pediatricians at University of Maryland and at hospitals and Hopkins in the area. He taught this stuff, lived it for many, many years. And for them to come in and say he's some kind of carpetbagger coming in from Israel was ridiculous. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially since he had taught most of the doctors who were probably in the Baltimore area, I imagine. That's right. How much do they, how much does it come up in these cases, um, you know, through expert testimony or otherwise, that, that like, that the problems that people like Ashley are experiencing or the injury, how much do they dispute whether it was caused by lead at all? Or do they, or because of the blood testing, do they kind of skip over the lead issue and just argue she was exposed to lead in all these other places? Well, it's both, but in these cases and including this one, it's a big issue about, well, she would have been this way anyway. And uh, so because the, of the population of people that are exposed to lead, you don't hear about people in the really rich areas getting exposed to lead. You hear about minority marginalized populations getting exposed to lead. And so they, defendants often come in and say, well, look, mom didn't graduate from high school. What do you expect? Or, you know, mom used drugs during their pregnancy or drank during her pregnancy. They cause the same kind of in, uh, injuries that one would expect to see in a lead exposed child. But First, two points. One, that's a really dangerous argument to make to a jury in Baltimore. And number two, remember, all we have to show is that lead was A, not the, or not the biggest, Mm -hmm. but a substantial contributing factor to a child's injuries. And the cases say that substantial, in quotes, means essentially in some way contributory. It doesn't have to be greater than 50% contributory or the biggest contributor. It has to be a contributor. And when I'm faced with this in these the pain cases that we do, I say an opening, usually, you're going to hear evidence that mom had a drug problem. And not in this case, by the way, but that mom had a drug problem while she was pregnant or that mom drank, or that there was some later history of neglect or abuse. And all that's true, ladies and gentlemen, and I will be lying to you if I didn't tell you the truth up front. But here's something else that's true. Ashley was exposed to lead, and that caused her injury. So yeah. that's how you deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah, you gotta hit that stuff head on. I, I yeah, I completely so, agree. <clears throat> so um, it, it strikes me that um, jury selection in Baltimore on these cases might uh, be interesting because it sounds like everyone in Baltimore is sort of aware of lead and the dangers of lead. Is that right? And, <laughs> and I guess talk about how you did your, your jury selection. <laughs> so Wadir in Maryland is extremely limited. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, it basically you submit your questions to the judge, the judge, both sides do it. Some judges, including the judge in this case, 
let you ask follow-up questions on a limited basis. But it's not like New York where the judge is even there during voir dire right, right. and you just get to talk, talk to the jury. So you're right, Steve, that, that, you know, does anybody know anything about lead poisoning? The entire panel, of course, raises their hand. And then you ask the follow-up question. Okay, what do you know? You know, And can you listen to the evidence in this case, disregard what you've heard in the past, and render a verdict just based on the evidence that you hear? And some people say no, and they're excused, but some say yeah. And in our case, because it was going to be a long trial, four and a half weeks, I give the judge a lot of credit, Judge Fletcher Hill. He actually did voir dire in his jury room. And so what he did was he asked all the questions at once and we made notes about who answered what questions. And we went back to the jury room and he, and he brought each juror back one at a time. We got to sit down at the table and then he would go through the questions that the judge had asked and that they responded affirmatively to. And we got to engage in more than the usual amount of back and forth with the potential jurors. Got it. So they, so I, I was wondering, I guess maybe in, in that instance, then given that you were maybe given a little more um, of a little more depth in the process than usual. I was just wondering, like when you had started your opening and explaining what happened, if the, if the jury reacted the way I reacted, which is, I, I just was absolutely floored that, that such a thing would have happened <laughs> in the nineties. Um, but did they kind of already get enough from Vordire to know what they were going to be hearing or did you get a similar reaction from them? Um, so they didn't get so much a, they knew it was a study, but they didn't get what the study was about really. They knew it was Kennedy. And like we had one, one member of the panel come back and say, I know about this study. This is a racist study. I can't be fair. And obviously that person was excused. But almost everyone, of course, I mean, Hopkins is known around the world. And so everyone come, came in and said, I know what Hopkins, yeah, I know about Hopkins. I know Kennedy Krieger. But mo most people said, I can listen to the evidence and be fair. And I have to say, you know, there were five of these, forget the appellate law that uh, Susie Shapiro did uh, in, in Grimes established and then our office established Partlow. After Grimes, there were five of these cases that went to trial and every single one went into it was a defense verdict except for ours. Oh, oh wow. wow. So, uh, and that, you know, to be, you know, we had the benefit of reading every single one of those transcripts to yeah. learn about the prior testimony, learn what worked and what didn't work. And that was a great advantage that our office had that the, our predecessors did not have. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, it's, uh, it's good that you read those. I mean, that's you know so important because you, you definitely could tell from the defense lawyers opening that he, they he sort of had this air of, you know, how dare you question Kennedy Krieger, um, you know, that we've done so much for this community and how dare you come after us kind of that kind of air. I mean, I, I was a I, and in fact, I noticed that I even I even wrote in the margins that it seemed like he may have gotten a little heated because it at, right at the beginning, he basically said that you were lying to the jury in your opening. Yeah. And I, I was yeah. like, wow, that's a pretty powerful, you know, accusation to make right there at the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, that I, I wrote that down too during, <laughs> during his right. opening. Right. But one, you know, this is to get back to your trial thing, Yvonne. One of the things I always do is I get the defendant's opening statement transcribed mm -hmm. every time. And one of the things he said during his opening was that, but the evidence is going to show you that every single child who participated in this study, not just the kids in this case, but every blood lead levels went down. That's what he said during his opening. Uh, now there was a motion in limine that I couldn't bring in other kids' blood lead levels that went up who mm -hmm. weren't in this actual house, but he said it during his opening. Now, of course, no evidence to that effect came in during the trial because it was a motion in limine that said it can come in. 
But I pulled that out and I showed that to the jury during closing. And I said, he promised you that he was going to show you that every single child who participated in the study's blood lead level went down. He called me a liar during opening statement. I'll let you be the judge of that. That's so. That's great. Yeah. 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 No, and I agree with you about, uh, I mean, you know, if you can't get the uh, the opening statement uh, transcribed, they take really good notes because it's there's nothing better to, the, to bring up what the uh, what the other lawyers said and then what they weren't able to uh, prove at trial. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very effective if you can blow up the transcript. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, Brian, this has been uh, just a great, um, uh, a, a great conversation about this trial. I want to remind everybody that we're, we've been talking about Ashley Partlow versus Kennedy Krieger Institute, which was uh, tried up at the Baltimore City Circuit Court. Uh, and we've been talking with, uh, with Brian Brown of Brown and Barron LLC in Baltimore, Maryland. Brian, is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners uh, know about this case before we, uh, before we let you go? Uh, no, ex- except that, uh, you know, they, they took an appeal of our verdict, uh, and subsequent to the appeal, they uh, gave me a call and they said, will you take less to settle this case? And we, I called Ashley and Ashley said, well, I can't use the exact words that she said, but she said no. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, they ended up paying the full amount of the judgment and withdrew the appeal. That's great. That's I mean, fantastic. That's really fast. I mean, I mean, yeah. you tried this just last October, right? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. Yeah, that is that is quick. And good for her. Good for Ashley. Sticking yeah. to yes. her guns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I well, give her a lot of credit because during this whole process, I mean, she could have said... I'm thrown in the towel and she didn't. So it wasn't just our office that was persistent. Mm-hmm. She was too. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, well, great work. Uh, and I should remind everybody that the verdict that, uh, that, that you got on behalf of Ashley was $1,841,000. Uh, and if you want to look up Brian and his firm, you can go to Brown Baron. That's B-A-R-R-O-N.com. Uh, Brian, it's just been really good talking to you and we really appreciate it. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.